who is David Goodhart? I'm a um, British journalist and writer. I'm 63 years old. I live in Hampstead, lovely flat in Hampstead, North London. I live right on the, um, right by the Hampstead Heath. So lockdown has not really changed my life very much. They're quite busy. I've been finishing a new book, um, doing the last sort of fiddly bits of proofs and things on this book that's coming out in September called Head, Hand and Heart. Um, yeah, so that's, um, that's where I am now. So, um, is there anything, has your view changed at all since you wrote your 2004 piece, Too Diverse? Um, not really, no. Um, I mean, I think the, the underlying argument in that is as relevant now, possibly more relevant now than it was then. I mean, it's based on a common sense, yeah. common sense idea that people are readier to trust and share with people that they have something in common with. Um, you know, we're not all individual blank slates. Um, we are, we are group-based primates with, um, um, with generally speaking a tendency to be more comfortable with the familiar. Um, you know, just a few sort of basic facts of human nature would suggest that there is bound to be a tension in some ways in modern societies between the, 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 the impulse to solidarity and cooperation um, and the desire for um, diversity, or if not the desire for diversity, the, the existence of diversity uh, of many different kinds. Um, now, I mean, this, this, this tension is not um, necessarily, a, uh, you know, um, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a tension that can be mitigated. It's not, uh, it, doesn't, um, it doesn't describe to us how we should behave. Um, you know, this is, this is where politics comes in. Um, but you, you've certainly seen in, in lots of West European countries, including the UK, um, you know, if, if you have large-scale immigration that happens very quickly, um, a lot of people are going to be um, disturbed by that. It's going to, uh, in certain communities and neighbourhoods and parts of big cities, it's going to lead to um, a disruption of the normal patterns of life. And that, um, and that is something that, that people on the left and the right should take account of and not just dismiss it as you know, nativism or xenophobia. I think most most people are basically decent, um, reasonably optimistic about about people and human nature. Um, but I think they also have certain requirements for for familiarity and stability in the way they live. Um, and um, and if these things are not taken account of, and I think too many of the people that have run um, Western democracies, rich Western democracies, in the last thirty years. Have tended to um, they tended to be successful people who are often mobile in their own lives, don't have very strong attachments to to group or place, and think that everybody should be like them, and um, and they're not. And this this is you know, this is one of the things that has led to contributed to the so-called populist backlash is that some of these things have not been taken seriously enough. And. Um... Is populism, is it our friend or is it our enemy? Um, I think it's neither really. It's a, but it's a, at least in its mainstream form. I mean, one has to distinguish between there are many different forms of populism. Populism is, you know, it's such an umbrella term. It generally tends to be used as a term of abuse by liberals um, for, for forms of politics that they don't approve of. Um, but I think there is, you know, there is mainstream populism in which one might include, I don't know, UKIP in the UK. Um, I'm not, I, I don't really know what the Canadian, perhaps Canada has managed to avoid populism. Um, um, but, you know, we've had mainstream populists like UKIP or the, I think, um, the Front National is pretty mainstream. Um, you know, you could say, I suppose, you know, parts of 
parts of the US Republican Party would be regarded as populist. Trump is certainly regarded as a populist. Um, I mean, I think it's a, it's a legitimate reaction to the over-domination of quite a narrow liberal worldview. Um, I, mean, I wrote this book three years ago called The Road to Somewhere, in which I talked about the value divides in, in, um, in the UK in particular, but it, I think it applies more broadly to rich Western democracies. This value divide between the highly educated and the mobile, and people who place a very strong uh, emphasis on autonomy, um, uh, in, you know, in individual autonomy, um, and are comfortable with with social fluidity and um, can live pretty well anywhere. Um, they have what uh, the American sociologist Talcott Parsons calls achieved identities. He talked about this spectrum between uh, achieved and ascribed identities. All of us have a combination of the two, but um, the, the highly educated, the people that have, that have dominated, in my view, over-dominated Western societies in the last 30 years, the people I call the anywheres, um, have tend to have um, identities that are um, that stress their own sort of self-creation. That they're, they're, they're own, they are the product of their own achievements to some extent. They, they you know they did well at school when they were young. They passed exams. They went to more or less good universities. They've had more or less successful professional careers, and that means their their identity is kind of more portable. Um, whereas the other larger group, about half of our populations are people I call the somewheres who tend to be much more less well-educated, more rooted, place a greater stress on familiarity and security, um, and tend to have identities that, um, that are more ascribed and things about, you know, they are, um, you know, they are, they come from a certain place, they are white, they are, they belong perhaps to a certain class, you know, they're a working class Geordie, someone from the Northeast in, in England, that, that gives them um, that gives them a, a more uh, you know a, a sense of themselves as attached to particular places and groups. Um, and if those places and groups change, as they do for all sorts of different reasons, uh, you know, gentrification, immigration, whatever, um, that can be that can be more disturbing to somebody with a so-called somewhere identity. It means you know your sense of yourself is more. Um, sort of susceptible to, to being disrupted and, and, and that's it's a more uncomfortable experience for some ways than it is for any ways. Um, How do we uh, change that? Yeah. The, the anywheres view of somewheres and the somewheres of anywheres to have a balance of the two and does that play into your new book about cognitive, the heads being the cognitive mm -hmm work, hands, the manual, and the heart, the caring work. And if you grew up in maybe an anywhere environment, could you end up in a different aspect afterwards? Or yeah. your environmental, social? Yeah, there is fluidity, I think. Um, you know, we're all yeah, we're all individuals. We're, our lives are all far too idiosyncratic in a way to, to fit easily into any of these big categories, whether you know working class, middle class, anywhere, somewhere. They're all um, they're all they're all necess necessary simplifications, obviously. Um, and I and I, it's important to stress that both the anywhere and the somewhere worldviews. I mean that these are big baggy. Um, fuzzy things I think they do they, they do have some value I think in helping us understand what's happened in Western politics in recent times but um, I think it's important to stress that both of these worldviews are perfectly decent and legitimate at least in their mainstream form I mean obviously there are at the more extreme end of the somewheres you get genuine nativists and xenophobes and racists um, and you know the extreme end of the anywheres you get you know the, the the citizens of nowhere who who have very little attachment to to any country you know who live in airport lounges and um and so on um but they are they are not representative of the mainstream in either of these worldviews so it, they're, they're they're both you know both are both are decent and legitimate as i say um and and, and it's the task of politics to build bridges across them and find common ground 
Um, I mean, society is always going to have divisions of different kinds. And um, we've moved in recent times from socioeconomic divisions being the, the defining ones. They obviously haven't gone away completely, but socioeconomic divisions have, have reduced in significance. And these, these value differences have grown in significance, mainly to do with educational stratification. Um, and the, the book that I just finished, which is a, it's a sort of almost part two of the Road to Somewhere book about the value divides, is trying to understand those value divides better um, and therefore indirectly trying to understand the, the sort of impulses behind populist movements that have, that have done, that have come sort of apparently from nowhere and done so well in Western politics in recent times. And I focus much more in this, in, in this most recent book coming out in September um, in both the US and the UK. Uh, it's called Head, Hand and Heart. And it's essentially describing how, um, how one form of human aptitude, one that is particularly um, common and, and valued by the anywhere classes, one form of human aptitude, cognitive ability, uh, indeed a particular sort of almost subset of cognitive ability, a sort of analytical essay writing ability, has become far too much the gold standard of human esteem. And, you know, and other, other human aptitudes, um, other ways of life, you might say, have, have kind of unavoidably been diminished, I think. Um, whether it's sort of, you know, manual, skilled trades, um, occupations, um, for which in most of our countries there is huge demand, by the way. Um, I mean, there's a sort of, there's, a, there's an economic mismatch, you know, we've, but partly because all Western countries, um, you know, as a result partly of anywhere domination of our politics, all Western countries have massively expanded higher education. Uh, you know, universities are classically anywhere institutions. Um, and they've become much more um, culturally, politically, economically significant. Um, you know, as the uh, as the proportion of the population going into higher education has risen from a tiny elite of five or ten percent back in the sixties and seventies to you know almost half of school leavers. I don't know what it is in Canada. I think it's probably um, probably around that in Canada as it is in the UK, and that's created a, a much bigger divide. I mean, it's, it's one thing when when only five or ten percent of your school schoolmates or people in your town go to university and you don't, it doesn't matter too much to your sort of sense of self worth. But if half of your schoolmates go and you don't, I mean that's a hugely different um, proposition and one I think the policymakers have not taken nearly enough account of. Um. How long did it take you to write this book? Uh, what was that process like? And when you were researching, was there anything that kind of surprised you? And what do you hope that people take away from your new book? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, it took me about a year to write, and I, I, was, I wasn't writing it full time, I was writing it part time. Um, uh kind of in the evenings weekends I, I did take some time off i actually started it i had a month at an institute in vienna um the institute der wissenschaft von menschen a really lovely little institute mainly sort of social science institute that i had a had a kind of month um sort of scholarship at um and so that really helped me get the thing underway um I mean, unlike the, my previous book, it was uh, was relatively easy to write. It was things I'd been thinking about for quite a long time. Um, I had sort of one major empirical source, which is the social British Social Attitude Survey data going back 30 or 40 years. Um, and there was kind of more philosophical stuff about, about the, the sort of, decline of traditional lefty right politics that um like i say that was that was relatively easy to write about this book has been more demanding in a way um and i, I mean I've, I've actually had more help i mean I, I wrote the first book more or less on my own um i had a couple of researchers helping me with um head hand and heart um and i was um 
I was writing about things that I didn't I I, I didn't know very much about. I mean, I, I, I mean, like cognitive ability itself and all the debates around how it's measured and IQ and um, how much value one attached to such things. Um, so I had to do. I mean, this is not a this is not a scholarly book. I mean, this is a kind of journalistic polemic. Um, um, uh, you know, arguing for this better balance that we need between the aptitudes connected to head, hand, and heart. And I, and I and I guess I hope that um, people will, um, many people will sort of see something in the book that they may already have thought themselves that it will you know put into. Um, anyway, you know, one of the, one of the nicest things for a book writer is when people say, as a few people did about my last book, the writer somewhere, you know that this, you know that people have been sort of having this these sort of feelings about the direction of society, and that my book helped to. Sort of clarify what they thought, and I guess I, I would like people to come away from this new book thinking that yes, there is something you know that these things are in our hands. Um, we can, you know, status and prestige and all of the things that I'm talking about and how we become unbalanced in our distribution, our allocation of status and prestige and so on. These are things that we can do something about. These are not set in stone. Um, you know, just, you know, if you look at um, people think, well, you know, this is just the way that society now works. It's the way the economy works. You know, people who highly qualified people are the people that are bound to be more rewarded than a than a than a brilliant nurse. Say, well, I, and I'm saying no. I mean, there there are always going to be hierarchies of human competence, um, but um, you know, competence exists in all sorts of human um, aptitudes, not just in cognitive ability. So, you know, why are we not rewarding um, the care workers better? Why are we not um, encouraging more people to, um, to go into you know, manual technical occupations for which there is a, a huge demand still? Um, we can shift status, we can shift attitudes towards status and prestige. I mean, if you just look at how, you know, as I say, these are not set in stone by immutable um, you know, market mechanisms of supply and demand, or rather those market mechanisms of supply and demand, lie, behind those mechanisms lies human beings making choices about things. I mean, look at, look at big corporations, look at how they've had to change their business plans, in the, or how their business plans have adapted um, in the last sort of 20 or 30 years to much greater public concern about the environment, to much greater public concern about gender equality. You know, these things, do change, um, and um, and and I would like people to to, to read this book and think: yes, um, we can change the way that we um, allocate reward and prestige in our society. Um, I mean, uh, you know, just in parenthesis, one of the things I'm also arguing is that this is kind of, without wanting to sound like a sort of Marxist determinist, these are things that are going to happen anyway to some extent, because one of the big one of the big things I discovered, actually, you asked me, you know, did anything? Um, I think I started writing the book with a with a with a sense that this was the head, hand, and heart, and the the need to rebalance. It was it was partly an extension of my critique of the kind of anywhere anywhere worldview of my previous book, that and, and the and that and that the cognitive meritocracy has got too pleased with itself, and and this is causing mass alienation. Um, so that was not exactly a new thought. Um, but what I did discover um, in the course of writing the book um, is that the knowledge economy, the so-called knowledge economy that has been you know, part of the source of the new status and prestige of, um, of the, you know, the credentialized um, cognitive meritocracy, um, the knowledge economy turns out now not to need that many knowledge workers. Um, and that we are going to have to to um, reallocate reward and prestige um, because the I mean I, either that or we're going to face you know highly highly unequal um, sort of you know oligarchies um, which is what a lot of economists and a lot of social commentators people like um, Yuval Noah Harari I mean a lot of people tend to be very pessimistic about how the technology and the um, the, the kind of emergence of these, you know, winner-take-all 
society mechanisms um, are going to lead to you know, even greater inequality than we have now, uh, which could even lead to a sort of a new kind of race of super beings who will have the means to kind of adjust them, adjust their 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 genomes to to live forever or be kind of super intelligent or whatever, or their children. Um, and the rest of us will be, you know, there'll be the kind of normals and then the kind of superior people that will move into... Anyway, I mean, all, all of those are rather dystopian fantasies, I think, uh, are dystopian fantasies. I don't think that's going to happen. I think, quite the contrary, I think the common sense of most rich Western democracies is, probably with the perhaps partial exception of the United States, is sort of social democratic. Um, and I think the... Um, and you know, you know, when we discover that we don't actually need the, the massive expansion of higher education of the last thirty years that has produced um, the the kind of the new the mass elite, if you like, the mass cognitive elite, 30, 40, 50 percent of the population, um, um, we we we've been producing the kind of middle and lower level workers for the for the for the knowledge the, the cognitive knowledge economy. And these jobs are simply going to disappear. I mean, this is what AI is now coming for. I mean, automation came for the manual jobs. AI is now coming for the cognitive jobs. Um, so people, are, and the one thing that we know that we're still, you know, that we have huge um, um, shortage of is care jobs. You yeah. know, and, and, you know, we, we've seen that um, in, the, in the pandemic. Um, the pandemic, I hope, could help, help in this head, hand, heart adjustment. Sorry, I've been talking too long. Um, um, I just have a couple more questions, if that's okay. Yeah. So, especially in Western societies in the United States, in your opinion, why does the idea or concept of liberalism scare some people? And what are the limits of liberalism and have they changed over your career? Cool, that's a big one. Um, I think what... I mean, lots of people are not scared by liberalism. Lots of people call themselves liberals and are proud to, to do so. I think what, what opponents of liberalism, both kind of articulate and more, um, more sort of instinctive opponents of liberalism, think that it, um, it's become too big for its boots. It's become too bossy. It's become, well, it's always had problems. For a lot of people, I think it's always been too individualistic, both People both on the left and the right um, who are who are more skeptical about liberalism uh, uneasy about its individualism people also don't like um, its um, its belief not just in um, in human autonomy but that um, that you know our, our notions of well-being or, or liberal notions of well-being are derived from from sort of so, the ideas of self-actualization, um, uh, which are, I think, to many people seem you know almost kind of narcissistic, um, and yeah, see see the life course and people's um, people's goals through through. Uh, an individual lens, which is simply not true to the way that almost everybody lives their lives. Um, you know, we are we are embedded in you know human networks, and we get you know we derive much of our satisfaction from from those networks and from um, you know being loving and being loved and um, human connections of various kinds. But and and, and the second thing I suppose is the whole. Um, unrootedness of, of liberalism, the fact that liberalism t tends to not understand feelings of belonging um, and familiarity. I mean, back, you know, back to my anywhere, somewhere distinction that, um, yeah, that, that, that liberalism is, um, is, again, it's sort of, the, it's, it's untrue to the way that most people actually live their lives. And it's, um, and it has tended to, it has tended to look down on 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 the sort of somewhere intuitions of 
of the desire for security and familiarity and um, and sort of steadiness in in a life. Um, I mean that, that that that's a sort of slightly abstract critique of liberalism, but I think though that you know that those two things, it's individualism, it's lack of understanding of of belonging and familiarity, um, have you know have sort of sociologically set liberals apart often from from you know large minorities, if not majorities, of the population, even in rich Western societies. Um, and then I guess you could add to that the whole question of how um, that the sort of I mean I think you know Douglas Murray has this image of kind of liberalism liberalism in the sense of kind of um, um, obviously liberalism means so many different things I mean there is um, there's what one might call indeed a, 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 a writer and a guy called Nick Timothy here who wrote a book recently he was an advisor to the British Prime Minister Theresa May he talks about the distinction between essential liberalism and sort of hyper-liberalism. Um, Douglas Murray similarly talks about how the sort of the, the liberal equality, equal rights train was sort of arriving in the station when suddenly somebody um, puts their foot on the accelerator and the train roars through the station. I mean, this is, you know, this is part of the sort of critique of woke hyper-liberalism. Um, but Nick Timothy, I think, rather usefully talks about essential liberalism, which pretty well everybody, you know, Marine Le Pen to, um, you know, I don't know, the, you know, the most, um, the most liberal person you can think of, you know, supports notions of, you know, rule of law, equality before the law, rights, minority rights, um, separation of powers, or at least in, to some degree, I mean, it's different in different countries. Um, but but, but you know, the, the, the importance of constraining power, breaking it up, um, um, you know, all, all of these things one would call essential liberalism. And, you know, and all but the most extreme populists would support essential liberalism um, um, as much as people, you know, as much as woke liberals. Um, um, but then there is the, then there is the, um, the, the kind of excesses of modern liberalism. Uh, the identity politics successes and so on and so forth that um, that have created this this new div new divide, um, and um, yeah, and I think a lot of politics over over the coming um, decades is going to be about um, about how about how we can sort of rein in the excesses of liberalism. Um, it seems to have a kind of tendency to. Um, to sort of push too fast, often for um, for, for the feelings of of quite quite significant minorities or majorities of our populations and and democracy. I think you know will um, will hold it back. I mean, you know, and you know that's what we've we've already seen that in a way with the with the rise of populism. It acts, you know, even when it's not in government, it acts as a sort of constraint on the the kind of liberal identity politics excesses of um of of hyper liberalism um how do we fix and address the imbalance distribution of status and work and has that always been there or is that just a current thing and what would unity of the two look like? And is that possible? Yeah. You know, one doesn't want to be stupid about this. I mean, one doesn't want to sort of say, you know, all everybody should have equal status. There will always be hierarchies of competence in society, and there should be. And, and people who are, um, you know, people who invent new drugs or, or design buildings are doing something that is more socially valuable than delivering letters or cleaning offices. I mean, there, there's no point um, you know, denying that. I mean, that, and, and, and those people should be rewarded for the, for the greater social value that they produce. Uh, I mean, the argument is partly that that, that that process has gone too far, but also that lots of people are kind of smuggled in to the, um, the, the cognitive rewards who, who don't really particularly deserve them. Um, uh, you know, it's 
it's um, only a tiny, tiny proportion of the cognitive meritocracy are, you know, inventing life-saving drugs or whatever. Um, you know, most people are working as, you know, advertising copywriters or, or, or doing things that we would regard as not necessarily particularly useful, you know, working on a, you know, for a financial PR company or, or whatever. Um, no, I mean, the, these things are, are not completely useless, but, you know, who is more useful, you know, for the daily life of a big city, someone who works for a financial PR company or someone who's doing the, the very demanding and stressful job of driving a bus, you know, through, um, um, through, through a big city at, at rush hour. Um, this is, um, and yet, you know, the, the person working for the financial PR company is probably getting paid two or three times more than the bus driver. Um, so it's a sort of matter of re, you know, that, that um, you, know, w w you know, this is not about um, sort of, you know, bringing down the, the highly talented, I mean, the highly talented, yeah, we need the highly talented, we need lots of very clever people to, to solve our problems. Um, they're, they're, they're useful people and they should be, they should be rewarded. But um, we need to, we need to, sh it's more of a sort of sectoral thing. We need to, there will always be hierarchies, there should be hierarchies, there'll be hierarchies of reward and, and status forever. They're, 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 they're unavoidable things, they're, they're perfectly good things. Um, but we need to spread it more across different sectors of, of human activity and human aptitude. I mean, that, that is my point. I mean, I'm, this is not some sort of crude, um, sort of modern version of communism. Um, I mean, I think, you know, you know differential pay levels and so, and so on, and, and differential status levels will always be with us. Uh, it's just at the moment they've become, um, they've got out of kilter in sort of almost sectoral terms with that, with, you know, the over-esteeming of, 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 of kind of middling cognitive abilities, if you like. Why should people care? Why should people care about anything? I mean, um, um, why should people care? You know, because most of us have a notion of, of a good society, which is, I think, you know, um, obviously it differs from person to person slightly, but I think we all have a notion of, you know, ideas about freedom, ideas about justice, about, uh, ideas about what a good society is. It is often not, that is often quite widely shared, at least at a, run, at a sort of superficial level. Um, and I think my, you know, what I'm proposing, I think is answering a real problem, a real, we have a real problem um, with both our, our kind of value, the value divides and the, the new cognitive divides that have been created by mass higher education. We've created a big problem. Um, and, you know, for, for um, you know, for mass well-being, we need to, there, there are a lot of, there are a lot of angry and alienated people out there, as you know, as we know from, from, from politics, from social media. Um, and I think one, you know, what I'm proposing is not the whole answer, but I think one answer to it is a, um, is a greater recognition of the variety of, of human aptitudes. Um, and how, you know, everybody, you know, this is, you know, everybody has, everybody has a place, everybody has value. Um, and the over-esteeming, I think, of, of one, one form of human aptitude has, has undermined that feeling, I think, for, for a lot of people. People feel they've lost. Harari sums it up brilliantly, I think, actually, in his, uh, one of his recent books. He sort of talked about how we've, um, we've swapped, um, um, what is it he says, we've, we've swapped, you know, humanity has, uh, has swapped um, meaning for power. Um, and I think that's, I think a lot of people feel, a lot of people feel they have neither meaning in their lives any longer, nor power. Um, but the, I mean, when he says power, I think, you know, he means sort of power over the environment, I think. Um, and it is true that, you know, modern liberal secular societies have face a crisis of meaning and i think that crisis of meaning has been exacerbated by the um um the over esteeming of one form of human aptitude cognitive ability um 
And how will the handling of COVID potentially impact the Canada-US-UK relation? And uh, what are your thoughts on how that we've handled coronavirus compared to how it's been handled in the US and the United Kingdom? Um, to be honest, I don't really know um, what's been happening in Canada, but the, the very fact that I, you haven't been in the headlines probably means that you've been handling it reasonably well, uh, or what or the sort of pre-existing condition in Canada means that you, you suffered um, fewer per capita deaths. Um, you have a more, you have some, you, your health system is sort of closer to a socialized health system. That would have been an advantage. I mean, I think America's private health system has been a big problem for them. Um, um, and I think, you know, you have a, you have a, you have a more European style state. I mean, I think one, one of the things we saw in the crisis, I mean, even, you know, leaving aside the Trump eccentricities was actually how weak the center is in the United States. Um, when it certainly when it comes to something like this, the, the center doesn't really have much of a role. So you saw this extraordinary sort of competition between all the different US states all competing for, you know, PPE equipment or ventilators, whatever it was. Um, and um, I'm telling companies not to send PPE equipment to Canada. What, what was there, there, there was a there was an issue about that, was there? Yeah. yeah told 3M that they couldn't send stuff to Canada even though they... Oh, really? Right, yeah. Um, no, well, I mean, the... Um, I mean, I think it is true that the, the so-called sort of, you know, Anglo-Saxon countries have not um, covered themselves in glory in the crisis. And I think you know, the argument there is, you know, to what extent was it sort of pre-existing conditions? We are, I mean, UK, US, Canada are some of the most open societies in the world. That may have contributed to the fact that we had so many more cases. Um, we tend to live in, you know, in big cities, even more than other European countries say. We, we have very, you know, very densely populated parts of our countries in any case. The UK particularly is very densely populated overall. Um, and that, that will have contributed to it. We're probably more, somewhat more unequal societies. <clears throat> I think that may have contributed to um, higher um, mortality rates. I mean, it seems that, you know, the, the, the kind of, um, what, what's, what's the phrase, the kind of so social democratic countries um, with, um, um, you know, with sort of narrow differences between people um, seem to have seem to have done best in the crisis, and also uh, and the and the countries that have done best of all have been Asian countries, East Asian countries, um, that partly perhaps because of their previous experience of SARS and um, and other and other pandemics meant they were better prepared. But the the sort of the greater discipline, stroke author, authoritarianism, even 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 though, of um, Asian democracies, um, well, authoritarianism is perhaps a, a bit pejorative, but the um, the greater sort of conformism. I mean, they're, they're less individualistic societies, um, and that may have helped. I think in you know in sort of track and trace type systems um, compared to um, you know the sort of bolshie individualism of Anglo-Saxon countries. So. Um, I mean, in terms of, um, of how, I mean, I think the pandemic, um, I, mean, I mean, my book in some ways is, is, has, you know, has benefited maybe, you know, in a way from the pandemic. I think these arguments are now um, um, more relevant, you know, particularly the, um, uh, the idea of raising the status of care occupations. One has to be careful about this. I mean, many care occupations, if you include, you know, hospital doctors and nurses are actually already relatively um, well paid and, and, and enjoy quite high prestige. It tends to be the sort of Cinderella old, you know, old, old, you know adult social care and old people's homes sort of um, being quite badly hit in the crisis that have been, um, that, you know, that is where we need to concentrate our thoughts about raising 
raising the status of ordinary care jobs in those areas. And I think you know the fact that we've all been we've all been praising our, our, our medical and care services, and indeed the kind of ordinary low you know the, the the what I call the sort of hidden wiring jobs that the jobs that sort of keep the show on the road, the people that stack stack shelves in supermarkets. I mean, these are the kinds of jobs that we've traditionally frightened our children with. You know, if they don't do their homework, you'll be you'll be working stacking shelves in a supermarket. It turns out that stacking shelves in a supermarket is an absolutely essential job. Um, and now, I mean, it may be that most of us still don't want our children to do that job, but um, we've kind of, we've come to notice a lot of these basic, basic jobs. And I think we'll be more open to the idea that they're, that the status and reward attached to them should increase after the crisis is, is over. Do you believe it's going to be a permanent change or after the crisis is over? Are we going to go back to forgetting about the hands and the heart? Yeah, um, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's a really good question and I don't know the answer to it. And I, th I fear you may be right that we will, um, we will go back, but I don't know. I, I, think, um, I think something may have shifted a little bit in, the, in this direction of... Um, I mean, in some ways, it's been a very small C conservative, and indeed, you know, my thesis is in some ways a small C conservative um, one, or you know, of, of valuing valuing the things that are sort of close to hand. I mean, it's been a it's been quite a conservative crisis, but it's been a funny mixture of a conservative and quite a social democratic crisis. In that, in it's been concentrated very much in health services. Health services tend to be dominated by. Um, public sector professionals, public sector professionals tend to be the backbone of the modern left, actually, that or, you know, the, or, or more, more centre-left and, and liberal politics tends to be very much sort of, you know, teachers and doctors and so on. Um, you know, they have a vested interest in high public spending um, and so on. So in some ways it's been, and it's been a sort of, you know, what Matthew Crawford called sort of safetyism. It's been a it's been a sort of crisis in which safety is and social democratic. Let's all stay at home and you know, let's not risk anything. And um, that that kind of mentality has been very dominant. But it's also been a, a, a kind of conservative crisis. It's been very much the hour of the nation state. When I mean, certainly in Europe, the European Union did not cover itself in glory. People, all the countries were just closing their borders, you know, without consultation with any other country initially. I mean, the EU might bounce back. It's just passed this great recovery package that um, that will help help towards sort of greater ec economic integration uh, or could do um, so the, the jury is sort of still out on that but I think you know in terms of um, you know we've all been locked down in our homes often with our families it's, it's been family uh, you know people have people have sort of seen what is what is of most value to them and often that is you know their fellow family members or or often perhaps particularly people of a more kind of anywhere lifestyle who are used to rushing around the world. Um, they've been locked down in their neighbor and they've actually got to know their neighbors for the first time. I mean, I think that has, you know, it has created a sense of the importance of the local and, and rootedness, even amongst people who um, wouldn't normally appreciate those things. Now, those things haven't always gone well. I mean, you know, there, there has, no doubt in most countries been increasing violence within families, you know, abuse and so on. But I think, um, you know, I think if you look at the bigger picture, I think people will have been valuing, um, valuing family life more and, and valuing their, their connections and not just their own sort of individual success. Um, when history looks back at coronavirus and the handling from Western societies, what will be remembered about this time in history? Um, I think in a way it's a sort of marker of a marker of how civilized we've become in many ways. I mean, um, I mean it may be that in years to come we'll, we will look back and we'll think we overreacted. I mean, I think that's more likely to be the response. We overreacted. We closed down our economies in order to save the lives of mainly people over 80 years old. I mean, what an extraordinary thing. <laughs> um, 
Um, what an incredibly humane and civilized thing, you might say. I mean, the Spanish flu, you know, which, which will still, uh, I think, end up killing, you know, you know several times, um, you know, 25 times more people that are going to be killed unless things go very wrong in Africa or somewhere. Um, you know, a hugely large number of people were killed by the Spanish flu. And people barely registered it. I mean, um, admittedly, you know, it was we were just coming out of a great world conflagration, First World War. Um, it just didn't feature at all. I mean, you know, I guess a measure of partly of just how much more brutal people's lives were even 100 years ago. Um, so I think, um, I mean, I think it may contribute to the to the to the shifts that were already happening both in in internally in Western societies, but also perhaps in the whole East-West shift. You know, Eastern countries, as I was saying, have, done, have handled it generally far better than Western ones. Um, um, I mean, I just, you know, it'll, it'll probably accelerate the, the shift in power, economic and other power to, to the East. Um, so it might be seen as a sort of hinge moment in that respect. Um, but the extraordinary, nature of voluntarily closing down our societies and then you know and then the kind of you know the collective underwriting of the <clears throat> the incomes of many people i mean this hasn't happened in the same way in all all countries but i i assume that canada has some sort of collective underwriting of the people that have not been at work um uh, yeah uh, two thousand people who've lost their job can get two thousand dollars a month right yeah yeah so, I mean, you know, I, I think in many ways it's a, it'll be, you know, pe people, I think, you know, Western societies, e even if it turns out we have uh, hugely overreacted, um, we've overreacted sort of in, you know, in a benign way to, um, uh, and, and um, yeah, particularly, I mean, you know, assuming our economies bounce back pretty quickly, which I think on the whole they will. Do you have time for a couple more questions, sir? Yeah, I've got to go. I've got to go. Uh, I've got to make a phone call at uh, two o'clock my time. So, so yeah, six six minutes. Yeah. Has this pandemic changed your thoughts about Western society, and what impression has it left on you? Um, I think. Um, well, as I. As I was just saying, I mean, I think in many ways it's it's shown Western societies in rather a good light. Um, the um, I think more more negatively, I think it's shown how poor we are actually at assessing risk. Um, if, as I suspect is the case, you know, when the dust really has settled and we look back in five or ten years' time, we will think on the whole, what an extraordinary overreaction. What um, next? Hmm? and what's next for David Goodhart? What can we expect from you? Um, well, I, having just written a book, I'd quite like to spend quite a lot of time reading books, actually. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I, um, you know, partly in order to find something new to say, I think I need to, um, I need to absorb what other people have been thinking. Um, when you, when you write a book, you tend to. I mean, I haven't written, I haven't read a novel really for for about a year or more than a year. Because um, you know, if you're writing a book, particularly if it's a quite a ambitious, broad brush book about society and the direction it should be taking, you're you're always thinking, oh, you know, God, I must read that. You know, even and you're flick reading things the whole time, which is very unsatisfactory. Um, so what I'm looking forward to is um, now I've got the book out of the way is to reading what um, other people have to say and I'm thinking about that. I just had two more questions. Um, if you could be any political political figure in history, who would you be and why? And <laughs> what did you tell uh, David in 1995? <laughs> magazine about what the status of the world would be right now oh that's an interesting question um if i could be a historical figure i think i would be um 
Um, perhaps this is slightly silly, but um, I would be um, von Stauffenberg, the, um, the German general who failed to blow up Hitler in 1944. We just had the anniversary, the, it's the July the 20th plot. Um, I mean, obviously a huge amount of destruction had already happened, but if Hitler had been um, killed in 1944, a lot of destruction, further destruction could have been stopped. Um, um, you could probably say that about people that tried to kill Stalin. Although I don't think it's quite the same. I mean, if Stalin had been killed or Chairman Mao had been killed, they would have just been replaced and the system would have gone on. If Hitler had been killed in 44, you know, it would have ground to a halt, I think. Um, I mean, there would have been a sort of bloody civil war in the, um, in the kind of German elite. Um, anyway, um, what was the second question? It was um, how I, how, what I would say to my 1995 self. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, what would I say? What's going on right now? Um, I, I would, um, yeah, I think my 1995 self would be, um, would be, would be surprised and slightly horrified by my 2020 self. Um, um, I was very much more orthodox sort of center lefty in 1995. Um, um, but I think, um, I, don't, I mean, I think my 1995 self wouldn't, well, I suppose I, I would, I'd be, I'd be surprised and horrified by, obviously by Donald Trump, by um, Brexit, um, all of those things. I, I would have had no understanding of, or, or, you know, any sort of sympathy, sympathetic understanding of. Um, I, I would think, I think that the world had gone slightly mad. Um, my 2020 self doesn't think that at all. And my 2020 self thinks this kind of legitimate pushback against people like my 1995 self. <laughs> it's been an utmost pleasure and I look forward to seeing what's next. And I look forward to reading your upcoming book and I hope you have a beautiful rest of your day. Oh, lovely. Thank you. Thank you for your really interesting questions. They made me think. <laughs>